Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, January the 16th, 2023. There's one theme over the years that seems to have dominated most of our shows. It's what comes after neoliberalism. We've done shows with the historian Gary Gensler on the rise and what Gensler believes is the fall of neoliberalism. So many different alternatives, and though none of them seem to be particularly viable or practical. We did a show, for example, a few months ago with the British political philosopher Daniel Chandler, who believes that we need to take back up uh, John Rawls's theory. Chandler has an influential new book out, Free and Equal. But it seems as if the real search, the holy grail, particularly amongst progressives, is for an alternative to capitalism that isn't socialism, that certainly isn't communism. And so it's appropriate today that uh, a new book is out on January the 16th, uh, called The Alternative, How to Build a Just uh, Economy by uh, Nick Romeo, the Berkeley-based uh, New Yorker writer. And I'm thrilled that Nick is joining us. It's his first book. Nick, The Alternative, where have you been looking? Thanks, Andrew. Great to be here. Um, you know, The Alternative, as you probably imagine, it's an allusion to the the famous phrase very associated with Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s, um, there is no alternative. Uh, the, and then she, the title may be a little bit of a handbag. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the title may be a little bit of a, a deep cut now that we're, we're 40 years on, but I think the philosophy it exemplifies is still very much with us as you suggested in your intro um, where I've been looking, you know, the book mostly focuses on, actual case studies. So I, I've been based in Europe for the past several years. Before I was here at Berkeley, I was I was living overseas. A lot of the examples are European. There are chapters in in Spain, in Austria, um, Portugal, but there, there's also some American focus. So it's mostly European and American, and it's a kind of collection of case studies of actual initiatives that really exist to some extent. So the kind of counter argument to the utopian charge is just to point at on the ground reporting and say, look, people are, are doing something. You may agree or disagree, but it does, in fact, exist to some extent. Well, at least uh, you didn't spend too much time, I hope, Nick, in uh, Denmark. Whenever we have these conversations, the Danish model always seems to come up. We're going to get to some of your alternatives, but let's historicize it first. As you know, uh, the title of your book, The Alternative, is... Uh, a rather ironic take on Margaret Thatcher's notion uh, in the late 70s that there is no alternative to market capitalism. She was, of course, responding to what seemed at least the bureaucratic socialism in Britain, perhaps the New Deal socialism or a New Deal bureaucracy in the United States, which Reagan attacked. Um, that ran for about 40 or 50 years, and it seems to have failed. Is that a fair historical background that socialism, at least the British Anglo-American version didn't work very well, became bureaucratized, uh, lots of strikes, lots of corruption. 
Then we had the neoliberal period between the 80s and about 2010. And since then, everything seems to be in flux, that we're not quite sure what exists and where to go. You know, it's it's an interesting question. I think if you want to go a little further back in history, I, I start the book with a sort of origin story of economics and economics used to be part of political economy and as such it was conceived of in more philosophical and political terms some of the normative debates about distribution of resources about fairness um, these were front and center when the field was conceptualized in that way there's a, a sort of a strand that runs throughout the history of economics and goes all the way back to its origins in political economy that presents the status quo as inevitable. So the idea that there is no alternative, you can see this all the way, you know, back two centuries ago in the work of early political economists like Ricardo. Um, he compared government intervention to, you know, invoking the force of gravity. He said that if, if you use the government to ameliorate the conditions of the poor, this will just create more misery. And this is as certain as the force of gravitation. So the appeal to a quasi natural law, something out of physics or chemistry, it's a, it's a kind of old maneuver that shuts down conversation and says, anyone interested in ameliorating things, changing the status quo is naive. They're just like a critic of gravity. Um, Fast forward a century, early 20th century, you see a similar maneuver. Um, opponents of efforts to decrease corporate concentration. So basically, you know, in the era of the progressive political movement in America, there were huge businesses, not unlike the huge tech companies today. There was also an antitrust movement. So some of the critics of the concentration of corporate wealth, they were dismissed in the same terms, saying, uh, literally, again, this is like opposing the law of gravitation. Fast forward one more century, 21st century. Um, I quote a caption from just a few years ago in Science Magazine in which the distribution of income around the world is described by people who self-identify as econophysicists. I kid you not. Um, they say that the distribution of income is inevitable. It's inevitably going to involve a very few rich people and a huge number of poor people. So I think to historicize the idea that there is no alternative, you kind of have to take the history of economics seriously, and in particular, this maneuver to analogize the field to something out of the natural sciences and thereby kind of strangle the political imagination that might imagine some other state of affairs. Nick, you describe that as a maneuver. You, you bring up Ricardo, who was, of course, an economist. Um, and you also bring up people opposed to the antitrust laws, presumably the standard oils of the late 19th, early 20th century. Isn't there a difference, though? I, I mean, the word maneuver suggests a kind of almost an excuse, a plot, which may be true of... Um, of Standard Oil and many other companies for whom uh, the interest is, is purely profit. But there is a legitimate argument of people like Ricardo uh, that, uh, that the market works. I mean, it's not just Ricardo. It's well, we've done many shows on Friedman, on Hayek mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 a, and a rich 
tradition of of economic thinkers don't don't we have to give these people credit that they actually believe what they say you know i think that's a fair point and you're right to pick up on the fact that maneuver is sort of a word that makes a tacit claim about motivation you know i think if you look at some of the people funding economics education initiatives today from the far right um you know billionaire funders who are pushing a particular agenda you know and the coaches always come up when absolutely absolutely i talk about them in in chapter one they are i think it's reasonable to describe people like that with the term maneuver you know i think you're right that in other cases people can be sort of true believers there's a sincerity in their view that um most political and moral questions having to do with economics are not normative, that you actually can settle them somehow through empirical means. I think it's a sort of naive view and not a very philosophically informed one. But I think you're right that people do sometimes hold that view sincerely. Um, and that's compatible with the same view being weaponized by by those with less sort of uh, unobjectionable motives, right? The, the Koch brothers, etc. Would it be fair to say, Nick, that there's a, uh, over the last couple of hundred years, there's been an equivalent, let's call it historical materialism, because that's what they called it on amongst progressives, the idea that history is inevitable, that there is no alternative to socialism and in dire doctrine, series of revolutions were built on that. So it's not just conservatives who believe in the inevitability of history of there not being alternatives it it it, it attracts both left and right absolutely i think that's very true and not always widely appreciated um you know in the book one of the arguments i make is that smuggling in political agendas under the mantra of inevitability within economics education um, it's not something that the right has a monopoly on And there's something objectionable about it, even if the people doing the smuggling uh, have all of the positions you agree with. So let's say you think income inequality is far too high. Let's say you think global warming is an enormous global crisis. Even given those views, which I think are pretty plausible and empirically founded, one might still feel understandably a little bit of discomfort if someone in an economics classroom were simply saying uh, there is no room for disagreement or debate about these topics the the data have shown in a manner akin to a sort of a demonstration in the the natural sciences the data have just shown that this is the only possible economic arrangement and that this will inevitably happen um i think the danger for the sort of inevitableist maneuver in argument and education exists on both sides one could disagree maybe with the the right a bit more vociferously and i think it's plausible to say that there's a little bit more evidence that they're ahead of the curve on weaponizing economics education but one still might not want the answer to just be a kind of reverse weaponization by the left saying no no we'll we'll keep all of the the kind of what one economist calls physics imitating mode physics envy basic we'll, we'll keep the physics envy mode of economics uh we'll just replace all of the doctrines with progressive goals. I think that would still be objectionable. Nick, the subtitle of, of, of your new book, The Alternative, is How to Build a Just Economy. Mm. 
I'm guessing for the right, the idea of a just economy is a free market economy, whereas for the left, how to build a just economy is a more egalitarian economy. Is that a, a, a fair summary? You know, I think people on the right at some level do become concerned about inequality. Um, the specific level, I think, does differ. And, you know, I think the free market as a concept, one of the arguments I make in the book, and this is this is not original to me. I think this is pretty widely appreciated. Um, one of the arguments I make is that, you know, the extent and scope and rules by which markets function are always moral and political. So mm. there's no eternally valid border at which freedom in markets ends and then sort of regulation, whether you view that as coercive or positive, begins. There's no such border. I mean, we today would regard the elimination of uh, child child labor, um, the institution of workers' compensation, workplace safety, all of these things are reductions of freedom in markets. We just now conceptualize freedom as having this sort of baseline of protections. But it's not clear why that baseline sort of designates some natural, eternally valid border. And so I think that the claim that the the question is never whether a market is free or unfree, but rather the extent of moral and political safeguards within that market. I think that's a kind of a helpful reframing that that many economists now kind of make routinely. And I, I think it's it's taken some time for that message to get communicated more broadly to the popular imagination. How much of this depends on how we define whatever it is we as a species are? for, I guess, conservative or certainly pro-market economists, the idea of homo economo, ec economic man is, is core to the identity, whereas, of course, progressives don't always agree. Should one or can one work on first principles in terms of this idea or ideal of a just economy does it require us to define who we are why we exist yeah that's a fascinating question and it is something that i explore in various ways throughout the book um, i'll give you one example so in, in one of the chapters i I do some reporting from Austria, where in a town outside of Vienna, there's a very interesting pilot of a job guarantee study. So a job guarantee, as the name suggests, gives anyone who's interested in work access to a job. They have a sort of guarantee of work. Now, they're not compelled to take it. In fact, they have the option in this town of remaining on unemployment. So if you had a sort of old school homo economicus view, you would likely predict that people would want to do as little as possible. We're sort of lazy, self-interested, and if we can get something for less effort, we're not gonna just choose to go out and work every day if we can just get paid by the government. You hear this rhetoric at all levels of, of political discourse in America, certainly, and I think in Europe as well. Here's what they found when they actually evaluated the participants in this job guarantee outside of Vienna. Even though everyone had the option to continue receiving unemployment benefits, no one chose to. All of the participants wanted to do the job guarantee rather than continue getting unemployment. Now, it's important to note that 
the job guarantee gave them some power to design the type of work they did. So it wasn't just that they were thrown into the first opening, however ill-suited or difficult or unpleasant the job was. They had some real agency in designing the work. Um, even so, I think that's a kind of dramatic example of how the human nature presuppositions that, you know, if you just take them out of their origins in political philosophy and early economic thinking, they're often quite unempirical and, and are not what people find on the ground. We're speaking with Nick uh, Romeo. It's not like Romeo and Juliet. It's a different pronunciation, although I probably mispronounced <laughs> it, as I tend to do with all our guests. Um, he has a, an important new book out, The Alternative, How to Build a Just Economy. I want to remind everyone that high-quality guests like Nick are brought to us by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. It's going to run a short feature on Liberties. Then we'll be back with Nick to talk more about what exactly this alternative looks like in the 2020s. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens, Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. You have no alternative but to subscribe <laughs> to Liberties. We're speaking as it happens, with the author of The Alternative, How to Build a Just Economy, Nick uh, Romeo, uh, freelance writer based in Berkeley, teaches at the J School there, works also extensively for The New Yorker. He's been spending the last few years looking at different alternatives. Nick, when we look at the economy of the 2020s, in 20, early 2024, it's an unjust economy. I don't think many people would disagree on that. Is the primary injustice inequality? Is the primary injustice the absence of work or the meaninglessness, the meaninglessness of work or the bureaucratization of the economy? Where do you think the core injustice of, of particularly of the American economy is in 2024? There's no shortage of candidates and the things you mentioned are, are all quite plausible. Um, you know, as as we know, inequality in America is at extraordinary levels. Um, at the same time, many people struggle to find decent work. Offshoring over the last few decades has resulted in millions of, of decent jobs leaving America. Um, meanwhile, a lot of work is fragmented. Um, governed by algorithms and the value generated by that work accrues to shareholders and tech tech companies. You know, a final very obvious but very severe issue that one, one sort of can't discuss a just economy without mentioning is climate change. So what economists call externalities, these are, are the typically unpriced costs of economic transactions that they could be upon humans, but they could also be on ecosystems or the natural world. Externalities are a pervasive feature of the way our economies currently structure. And so getting that price into more transactions so that people, policymakers, consumers, business leaders 
are actually aware that when we don't pay a price, when we say, okay, our, our grandchildren will deal with that, um, it doesn't just magically disappear. We're just sort of making someone else pay it, often in the future or often someone far away across the world. I'm pleased you brought up um, global warming, Nick. Uh, a few months ago, we had the president of the Club de Rome on the show. I'm sure you're familiar with their work, who argued that the, the problem with the market as it is in the 2020s, is the market itself, or at least the stock market and the short-termism which is built into the market and the way in which no one can think in the long term because companies are disincentivized to do so. How much of the alternative looks into alternative ways of valuing corporations? Well, that's such an important point. And I mean, I would absolutely like to shift the short term thinking to something more long term. Um, you know, there are sort of two things in the book that I'll just mention briefly that I think touch directly on that challenge. Um, the first is something called true pricing. So true pricing is a movement. It's mostly based in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, but there are sort of a family of accounting techniques, sometimes called true cost accounting, that exist around Europe and are also being used in America. The concept is pretty intuitive. So you, you think about a product, you know, in America, you might go to a grocery store, you might say, buy a carton of organic strawberries. And you might think, look, I did something good. These are organic. And that would be true. Now, Unfortunately, we have this kind of patchwork of labels and regulations. So your organic strawberries may have been flowing 10,000 miles, okay, maybe 5,000. They could have an enormous carbon footprint. They could also involve um, underage child workers. Um, they could also be implicated in land seizures, regional violence. Um, recent reporting about avocados in Mexico shows that that's precisely the case. We so, did a show, as it happens, on avocados in Mexico, but okay. it was a feature. I'm sure you saw the uh, the Harper's piece on that. So, so this is completely familiar to you and your listeners then, the idea that there, there's not currently a good way to know the full set of externalities for a product you buy, right? You could get something organic. It could have these other terrible consequences. You could get something local. Uh, with a very low carbon footprint, but it might not be organic, etc., etc. True pricing asks this sort of seemingly utopian question, could we ever have a comprehensive single metric that tells us all of the salient human and environmental externalities for a good? It could be strawberries, it could be microprocessors. Um, their answer is yes. And they actually have been working with companies and stores and governments around Europe to calculate true pricing. Um, I'll, I'll just give you one quick example. A 2021 study from the Rockefeller Foundation found the cost of the US food system. Currently, the national expenditure annually is about 1.1 trillion. If you use true pricing, it's about 3.2 trillion. So these true prices include environmental impacts, um, underpayment of workers, but also impacts on the health system. So if you subsidize a lot of unhealthy products, sugar, corn, soy, you're gonna end up paying that price in chronic health conditions for consumers. Um, 
is it fair that future taxpayers will pay more of that price than the corporations who are enriched by those goods? True pricing is a mechanism that kind of brings these moral debates to the forefront of economic conversation rather than just assuming the status quo is static. Um, uh, you know, a second thing I talk about in the book is climate budgeting. Uh, as you kind of anticipated, there is inevitably a brief part of the book about some of the the Northern European The Danes, I knew, you'd, I knew you'd squeeze them in, Nick. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so the they're a Danes, small part of the everywhere. book. <laughs> they are everywhere. They're a small part of the book. And what they what they do in Oslo is this municipal Although, uh, I, I don't want to be a geography teacher, but of course, Oslo is in Norway, not Denmark. Important point. Um, there are similar similar programs across Europe and actually around the world. But I focus on Oslo's climate budgeting program. And basically what that does is every part of the city that receives money from the city. So it could be school lunches for kids. It could be um, public buses. Every department has to hit a certain targeted reduction in emissions every year. And year after year, the slope of the curve is going steeply downward. Now, if, if you take that model and you apply it at a national level, it's a, it's a sort of powerful governing mechanism to ensure that everyone is pulling in the same direction. Right? I, I, you know, I, I think with Norway, and it's similar, of course, in Denmark, although Norway is an even more extreme, is firstly, you have much more of a collectivist culture there. And secondly, you have an enormously wealthy country with this sovereign national fund where much of the pricing for this or at least the subsidization and the investment comes from national wealth which ironically enough for better or worse is often based on natural energy and gas so is it really possible to say replicate that norwegian model even in a wealthy country like the united states it's certainly possible and you know the oslo climate budgeting program was studied by mayors around the world. So there were mayors from, I think, all continents, certainly from America, from Africa. Um, there were mayors from Asia. The mayor of Montreal was fascinated by it. So the Oslo model is is certainly something that other municipalities, including very large ones, are interested in replicating. Whether it can scale to national politics, I think, is much more a function. Scaling, it's just the resources that a, a government like Norway has. Yeah. You know, one part of this is that, like, the resources are going to be spent one way or another. So if you can spend them to create a market for, say, zero emissions construction machinery, that was one of the things that Oslo did, is, like, whenever there's a new building site, they're actually going to buy machines from companies that create electric diggers, scoopers, backhoes, etc. I think market crafting is one piece of this too. Like, so if you're thinking about a, a budget as a kind of a tool through which procurement can actually shape the behavior of private market actors, I think that opens up more possibilities. Is there a contradiction or can there sometimes be a, a contradiction, Nick, between the idea of building a just economy and a just society? You talked about true pricing which makes a lot of sense. And yet the consequences of true pricing is that organic strawberries are way more ex expensive. Um, 
And this, in some senses, might only compound inequality. So can a just economy and a just politics or a just society, can they exist in contradiction? That's a wonderful question. You know, I, I think the answer is yes. Um, <laughs> but it's also kind of a semantic question, right? Like if you had more expensive strawberries, it's not inevitable that the only way to pay that additional cost would be to just expect consumers to pay more and thereby exclude many sectors of the market who might previously have been able to afford strawberries. You know, it's also possible that companies could be compelled to internalize that cost themselves. They might have lower profit margins. Um, you could also imagine more rational systems of taxes and subsidies such that governments were sort of incentivizing private market actors to do the right thing. So that if you want to receive certain tax benefits, your true price target for this year has to be met. So I, I don't think it's inevitable that only consumers, and I actually don't even think it's particularly desirable to rely only on the goodwill of consumers. It's an well, interesting it's book. I mean, only, so if, if you go to the farmer's markets, uh, in Berkeley, for example, around the corner from where you are. I used to go there when I lived in Berkeley every week on a Saturday morning. Mm. It was full of wealthy, progressive people in Berkeley, happy to pay expensive prices for organic fruit and vegetables, which poor people couldn't, for better or worse, afford. How, how do you get around all that? So there's a, a interesting manifestation of true pricing that's, that's currently being piloted in Amsterdam at a grocery store. And so let's say you have two apples and one apple costs a dollar more than another. And that extra markup, we'll call it a true price premium. Let's say 50% of that goes to carbon offsets and another 50% goes to wage support because the people who, who grew or transported that apple were not compensated well. If the true price difference, if that extra cost is just enriching, you know, the boutique farmer who plies his goods to the rich people in Berkeley, that's a little bit less desirable than if the true price premium is then targeted directly back to the specific externalities that generated it in the first place. So this is a kind of logistical challenge, but it's something that you know, in Amsterdam, a grocery store that I profile in the book is already doing. And it's, you know, it's certainly not inconceivable that something like that could be replicated more. Yeah, widely. it's really interesting because when if there is a philosophy of mass supermarkets in the US, like a Safeway, um, I guess it's that they provide cheap food for the middle classes. It's never formally articulated in that sense but that's basically their argument that you come to us and you get cheap food and you have a right to cheap food but your argument or certainly the argument of true pricing is none of us really especially when it comes to a just economy and global warming we don't really have a right to uh cheap food we have a right to food which is priced truly that's well put. I would agree with that. And I think the key point here is that the the cheapness is a mirage, right? It's right. illusory. It's worse than a mirage. It's 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 destructive because it's only destroying the soil 
adding to global warming and all the and and, and industrial farming and, and everything else. Absolutely, you know, and a lot of this is psychological. I, I think the the sort of even the stereotypical American consumer buying something cheap at Safeway. I think if they were tangibly confronted with the impacts of what they're buying um, in human and e ecological terms, many fewer of them would feel comfortable buying it. They would want to shift to something else that was less destructive. Um, so the price is being paid one way or another. It's just currently those those costs are so distant in space and time that it's easy psychologically to kind of ignore them and believe the the seductive lie of the cheap price. Last week, we had Colin Mayer on the show. He's a professor at, in Oxford at the business school there. He argues less, I mean, he's on many of the same pages, I think, as you, but rather than looking at regulation, he's focused on reforming corporations so that they're the, the motor of building a just economy. In your travels in Europe and around the world, did you come across companies, and please don't mention Unilever, because they always seem to come up in this conversation. I know they're a Dutch-based company. Uh, corporations that are leading the building of a, a if not a just economy, a, a juster economy. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one that I'll mention is the Mondragon worker-owned cooperatives in northern Spain. Right. They've got a lot of press over the years. They have, and yet they're surprisingly unknown in America. There's a kind of odd silence about that model. It's as if, you know, it could never work here. And there's this sort of, sometimes it almost seems like a conspiracy of silence. But for people who don't know... A maneuver, Mondragon, Nick. It's a maneuver. <laughs> I agree. I agree. So Mondragon, you know, it's an enormous industrial network of cooperatives. They make things like jet engines, elevators, um, coffee machines, but they also have sort of basic science research. They have grocery stores. So you can put almost any content into the cooperative mold. And the basic feature of the mold is that executive to worker pay is capped at six to one. So highest never makes more than six times what lowest paid worker does. And there's also a one worker, one vote democratic governance model. So if you if you just think for a minute, what would an American company look like if, if it were ran along those lines? Well, let's take Chase Bank, where Jamie Dimond um, in 2021 made about $84 million. So if we imagine his pay capped at 6x the lowest paid employee, in fact, he would have only made 225,000 instead of 84 million. Um, that's a big difference. And that yet, is a big difference. We've heard, of course, that, that argument's been made many times before. What about the counter argument? They're leaving aside Jamie Dimon, but an argument associated with a Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk, both not particularly attractive individuals, but or, or Steve Jobs, all have an element of the psychopath in them, but also remarkable entrepreneurs that you you can't incentivize a Musk, a Bezos, um, uh, a, uh, uh, a, a Zuckerberg if they're only if the only upside of their entrepreneurial genius is six x the times of their workers. You know, I, I guess I, I think a sort of 
mature response to that argument would point out that the success of those individuals is much more a function of privatizing research that was initially publicly funded. I think that's well documented, especially in the case of Silicon Valley. Um, that's and, the Mariana know, absolutely argument. Yes, Mazzucato is is completely correct. I think in in her especially argument on Apple there. on that front, this her critique of Steve Jobs. You know, and, stole a lot of his stuff also from publicly subsidized platforms like the Xerox. Absolutely. So I think to ignore that element, to ignore the degree to which their success reflects current um, antitrust law in America is a little naive. And to pin it all on the sort of incentive argument also ignores the fact that places like Mondragon, you know, they have um, succeeded in private market terms. I mean, they have well over $10 billion in annual revenues. They have over 500 patents across many different Arcane well, they're still not well. And then finally, Nick, um, your, yeah. your book got a nice early review by Will Hutton, old friend of mine in The Guardian. But mm. he, he, he's sympathetic, but he said that it's whilst the book represents, and I'm quoting him, an enlightening, inspiring read, you're left wondering why such initiatives have failed to take hold. So even the example used in Spain, as you say, most people haven't really heard of, of that company. I mean, it's not dominating the Spanish economy. How would you respond very briefly, because we've got to end in about two minutes. How would you respond to, to Hutton's critique from the left? I mean, he's sympathetic to your argument. Yeah, I mean, I think the only way that these ideas become more common is, is through interventions like the one I'm trying to make in the book. I mean, so I guess to say that because they don't exist, they they can't exist is sort of to ignore that, you know, everything is an idea before it exists. And so at some point, none of the, the things I, I write about in the book existed anywhere. Today, they all exist somewhere at some scale. If we want that scale to increase, um, I don't really see an alternative other than to right. pay so in other attention words, to uh, Nick, uh, there is an alternative. Absolutely. Absolutely.